In a world where points depend on hinges, there are hinge points inside us all. History on a Segway. It's overdetermined. We are the points that our hinges have been seeking. What this podcast asks is what if? Agriculture. Fail or epic win? What if it was Johnny Bango Pit? What if the Ottomans had AK 47s? Maybe climate change was a good idea. What if the Ottomans had lightsabers? What if the buffalo killed the What if Santa Claus was real? Like an actual guy who gave presents every year. This is Hinge Points. Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we're excited to welcome to the pod uh, returning champion, Matt Chrisman, one of our first guests, one of our most beloved returning guests, and first time, long time, I'm talking on his behalf, Chris Wade. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Hello. Glad to be here. Uh, I refer to you two as the Hellboys. The Hellboys are in the house. We are in the Hellboys. <laughs> uh, so uh, everyone probably knows, listening to this podcast, but Matt and Chris, a couple of years ago, did a very interesting series called Hell of Presidents. Uh, and now they're doing a uh, new great series on the 30 Years War, an extraordinarily important topic to the history of capitalism, nationalism, and everything about why the world is the way it is on the 30 Years War called Hell on Earth. So guys, before we get into it, because we're going to do a little hinge points on this show to sort of shake things up a bit, why why this topic? What drew you to it after doing the President's Show? What drew you to European history? And, you know, a relatively arcane subject, perhaps, for the ordinary American, or dare I say, the ordinary Chapo listener. Well, the fact that it was it's arcane is one of the things that drew us to it, because it's a very important, crucial era that is relatively uh, untrod ground in terms of uh, uh, pop history or, or popular culture. So uh, we thought we could get, you know, uh, stuff out of it that uh, nobody was going to have encountered before. Uh, and the more we looked into it, the more we saw the striking uh, parallels between that moment and ours, uh, the, the crisis that unfolded, and also what was birthed by that crisis, the, the specific forms uh, of economic and political power that persisted to eventually dominate the globe. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we thought with no particular destination in mind that perhaps by looking into this particular moment that we could find some you know, ways of looking at our current moment that would put a put a sharper lens onto uh, the crisis that we're going through in this moment. So moment, moment. moment. I love it, moments. We love a moment, don't we? Yes. The, the hell boys love moments. This just <laughs> yes. in. Um, one of the most interesting things is is sort of the 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 importance of this war for the history of international relations and IR. So could you maybe talk a little bit about that? That why is this moment so important, not only for the formation of capitalism as a global phenomenon, but for literally the formation of this thing that we call the international system, which has dominated thinking about international politics for almost 500 years at this point? It really is the post-Reformation era that sees the 
formation of the first alliance blocks like uh, that we would recognize in the modern sense uh, among the powers of Europe. Uh, you, you, the transition away from just you know one group of cousins going after another one uh, based uh, solely on you know uh, claims to uh, territory and mm-hmm. and uh, you know. Uh, ancestral rights and, and, and forged documents, you have this <laughs> ideologically coherent alliance of states or proto-states uh, working together to try to assert a broad prerogative of, uh, against another block. Uh, and that's first emerges among the early Protestant countries uh, resisting the counter-reformation. And then by the early 1700s, you have these this well-formed, Structure, of course. The uh, f- funny thing is that the uh, loads the keystone of the Protestant alliance and the bank for the whole Protestant cause is Catholic France, <laughs> uh, which speaks to the fact that even though this is a, a religious alliance and these are religious conflicts, there's still the real generating friction is is dynastic power struggles, and that's something that France is incredibly precocious about. They're they're the first country in Europe to really transcend religion as a modus vivendi, because even in the 1500s, they're allying with the Sultan, the, uh, the Ottoman Turks against the Habsburgs. And that's the thing that makes the 30 years war particularly brutal and interesting is that it, you know, it starts off as the, essentially this domestic conflict within the Holy Roman empire around these confessional alliances. And the thing that makes it Brutal is the fact that it very quickly escapes the boundary of the Holy, such as it were, of the Holy Roman Empire and becomes a international power struggle that happens to be waged in the lands of the Holy Roman Empire. And that's the thing that makes it not a, a, a three years war, but a 30 years war as people, various entities keep trying to hash out their international disputes on the war-torn lands of uh, central Germany. Do you guys think something like that was inevitable? Is is there a world where you don't get the rise of the nation state and capitalism in formation with each other basically after colonialism? It, just to put it in a in a distinct way, could we still in theory be living in a world organized along confessional lines as opposed to national lines? Or is this an inevitable, inevitable function of the transformation in the political economic base of society? I th- I think that the technological uh I think technology is usually what's what pushes social change and the explosion of technological progress that happens alongside the demographic explosion of the early modern era. Uh, I think it's, it undermines any long-term religious framework for, for politics and, and for society as for capitalism specifically and the um, nation state, uh, maybe if the Turks took Vienna, <laughs> I've thought about that a little bit. If 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 the Ottomans had been a, uh, a more if spring in the Balkans had been less rainy, yeah, exactly. They've been if able to get their those, cannons. If they got yeah. those damn cannons across uh, the mud, uh, and and Vienna becomes you know the the western capital of the Ottoman Empire. That proximate danger might have forced uh, Europe into uh, subsuming their their dynastic differences and religious differences. Uh, and, and becoming the universal monarchy that, that the Habsburgs sought it to be. But we saw pretty conclusively, historically, that 
the capacity to do that just doesn't exist for any outside force in Europe, which means that they're going to, these medium states are going to keep fighting each other until they create these mechanisms that are perfected basically in the fight with each other. One thing I was also thinking about, you know, when we were setting outlines around for this episode is also because so much of this period is a dynastic struggle between France and the Habsburgs that maybe there is a different formation that is played out more directly than indirectly that causes France itself to be further alienated from the central Catholic church. And maybe that there is a different confessional alliance in which French Catholicism becomes a wholly different thing than Habsburg and papal Catholicism. And that forms a different, you know, axis of orientation around, around powers. I don't know. Yeah. Like a French Anglicanism. Yes, exactly. I want to ask, uh, sort of a variation on Danny's question uh, with a bit of a different direction. But first of all, I want to say, uh, Matt, I was so gratified. I think it was in episode two to find out that you uh, had seen the Orson Welles Nostradamus documentary. Oh, yeah. because the man who saw tomorrow. <laughs> I thought I dreamed that at one point. Like there was a period of my life where Orson Welles was the Nostradamus guy. Like I didn't know him as anything else. <laughs> uh, I, I think that movie, that, sh- that movie caused more existential crises among little kids. Oh, it's terrifying. Yeah. It's, like, it's oh my literally God, telling what? you. Look at first of all, the look at all these the amazing uh, predictions he had, and then he says the world is going to end in the nineties. There's going to be a nuclear war that you're going to be alive for. It was, it was, yeah, it was really terrifying. Uh, but my my question, li- listening to the the first part of this episode, it's it's sh- or the first part of your series. It's shocking how quickly this religious reform movement stopped being about religion or salvation or or even church governance. It became about nations and inheritance and and uh you know basic politics and i i'm curious having you know looked at the the reformation to to prepare for this do you think the reformation would have been what it was had there not been the habsburgs there for these princes to be reacting against and, and creating these this sort of political struggle I mean, it definitely motivated the princes. It gave them a real reason to cultivate uh, the Reformation in their territories because it gave them this leverage against a uh, threatening, overweening Habsburg authority. But the the original burst of Reformation occurs in the cities almost spontaneously as people encounter the printed text of, of Luther's critique. Uh, and you see the imperial free cities and, and, and larger towns sort of creating uh, their own religious models. And if there hadn't been a Habsburg to give a motivation to the princes to ally with that, then that would have had to have been suppressed one way or the other. Uh, and, you know, that, that kind of conflict, I think, if it had happened, probably would have pushed the Reformation west because the one thing that united the Reformation across Western Europe is that it's immediate brush fire popularity anywhere that you had an urban population. So it probably does not achieve the magisterial element that it got. And you don't have the great power politics dominating it, but some ferment is inevitable. I think as soon as those first pamphlets go out and, and the thing about uh, Frederick, the wise's uh, protection of Luther is that uh, a lot of it had to do with his desire to have Electoral Saxony uh, appear as a place for 
scholarship, learning, uh, and and the sophisticated urban life that uh, until that point wasn't really known for. Uh, I think the the corollary or inverse to that question uh, is also, you know, if the Reformation had not happened at the time that it did, in the course that it did, in the place that it did, would there have been some other mechanism by which the princes of the Holy Roman Empire would have tried to assert formally and together uh, unifiedly some more, some form of increased independence from the the empire and the emperor, uh, which seems like something that would have happened, maybe not on the same time scale. And I think we're going to get into this in a, in a little bit, but uh, you know, with that, that these things worked together as an ideological component and a political component, you know, that, that is the history that we have, but it seems like both would have happened independently of each other some way, most likely over the course of the 17th century due to the material factors that we lay out, you know, things like the little ice age and the crisis of agricultural production. Um, so, you know, yeah, that happens no matter what that has to be reminded like that. The, the little ice age and the attended collapse in agriculture that's baked in no matter what, uh, contingents occur. Before we get into the hinge points themselves, I just wanted a final question. How do you think this story relates to the rise of Western Europe vis-a-vis Eastern Europe within sort of European and then global history? Because if you look at, you know, the previous 500 years, there's no reason to think that it would be France and Britain and, and Germany that would emerge from European history as the dominant powers. You know, why, why not Eastern Europe? Why not the, these Austrian kingdoms and later Austro Hungary. Do you think that this has anything to play into that? Well, I mean, I, I think West Eastern Europe is sort of off the table just demographically. The, the population density isn't sufficient uh, to have the kind of uh, ferment that, that occurs, that the, the, the rubbing together, the, the pushing, the, the, the struggle uh, that you see uh, in, in Western Europe. Uh, and uh, I think Austria, Germany, uh, they're fundamentally too far from the trade routes that end up extending westward because it really is in uh, North, North and South America that the future of European domination is forged. Is it, there is also an issue in Eastern Europe that had, there's just like a slightly but noticeably different feudal relationship that developed there, a, a more independent peasantry, the, a less um, centralized aristocracy uh, that I think you, we 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 don't really touch on in this series that much, but is you know necessary to know why they are in a different developmental tra- trajectory than uh, Western Europe. So now let's get into the hinge points and and let's have a little fun with it. It's going to be a grab bag like we did on the Napoleon episode on the Chapo feed. But why don't we start with hinge point number one? Henry the Fourth of France is not assassinated. And before we get in, why don't you let people know who the hell is Henry the Fourth of France? Why is he important? And if he isn't assassinated, how does that change the trajectory of everything that comes after? So Henry the Fourth was uh, had been the leader of the Huguenot forces during the War of the Three Henrys, uh, the, the violent religious wars that racked France in the late 16th century. Uh, but once the uh, the Valois line died out after the assassination of Henry III by another Catholic uh, fanatic. Um, He converts to Catholicism uh, famously, but not accurately saying uh, Paris is worth a mass uh, becomes the King 
uh, and knits together uh, the Protestant and most of the moderate Catholic uh, forces within France, really only leaving the alienated, the most ultra-Catholics. And as a Catholic king of France, he orients himself towards uh, uh, neutralizing the Habsburgs. That had been the goal of French foreign policy for generations at that point. Uh, and as part of that, he was in the process in the sixteen late six in the six around sixteen oh nine sixteen ten uh, of negotiating with the forces of the uh, Palatinate, the Calvinist uh, elector electorate of uh, the Holy Roman Empire that will end up uh, seven years later plunging the the country into war by accepting the Bohemian Crown. Uh, uh, Henry was in negotiations with them for a coordinated invasion of. Germany to settle uh, one of the uh, succession disputes that were occurring at the periphery of the empire and were sharpening the confessional conflict within it and undermining Protestant faith in the Habsburg emperors as fair adjudicators of conflicts. Uh, and if he and his assassination throw, uh, basically cancels that operation. Uh, but there was a plan for a full French invasion of Germany there in 1610. Uh, so if that if Ravelac does not uh, get him, then that would have happened, and the entire uh, conflict uh, would have the contours of it would have been drastically changed. Because while France was very happy to fund the first everybody who wanted to fight the Habsburgs in the first half of the war, there is no direct French intervention until after the death of Gustavus Adolphus in uh, the 1630s. And then the whole war becomes the back half of the war becomes this miserable slog as the French uh, and the uh, Habsburgs try to bleed each other out. And if Henry had not died, then that happens much earlier, and the uh, early confessional crisis is essentially preempted. Uh, so I don't know if that would have. But the thing is, I don't know if that would have led for a greater bloodshed or or less. My suspicion is is it would have sort of pricked the balloon. And right, it ends it earlier, the, basically. Yeah, right? exactly. So you don't get uh, uh, sort of the permanent wartime, yeah. decades-long thing if they just go in at the very beginning and end it. Sorry, Chris, you were going to say they go something. in the, yeah, the beginning. I mean, the idea was to uh, – the goal was to reduce the Habsburg influence over the lands of Germany, basically, and the power of the emperor relative to the uh, constituent princes. Uh, and that was not something the Habsburgs were going to take easily, but – it might have occurred earlier to people that neither one of them, neither one of those sides was going to get the full result they wanted. And some sort of negotiated climb down uh, might have been possible much earlier. Cause then you would see like, just looking at the actual course of the war, what I imagine then is you would see all the uh, peripheral princes who are, you know, constantly griping about, you know, um, um, princely privileges and prerogatives who, you know, start, the rebellion in the 30 years war would probably ally with France and form a, you know, become the lesser partners of a larger, uh, you know, invasion alliance rather than being the proc, the main fighters of a war, a proxy war that uh, France is funding. So you have a, what a larger, more led by a more dominating force, able to coordinate uh, power from the top, uh, through France alliance that would bring together, you know, more participants to a more powerful military alliance earlier. 
they could set a, up a more full confrontation sooner uh, and, yeah, po- possibly create a, a shorter, more decisive battle. Like, who would win that? That could still be up in the air, but because then you would also have surely like intervention from the Spanish on behalf of the German Habsburgs. But it would probably be more like a uh, 10 years war than a 30 years war or something like that. Do you still think you get the state system formalized in the Treaty of Westphalia if something like this happens way earlier? Because that, to me, is the big question. If you don't get the decades-long war and basically all of Europe coming to be like, we don't want to do this again, we need to actually codify some proto-form of international law effectively, right? This is what Westphalia is usually pointed to as like the first glimmer of there's going to be norms and rules across borders. But is that dependent on 20 more years of war? Because that leads to the question, let's say it's, it ends in 10 years. Does something else happen in 70 years where you get a Westphalia, but it's you know in 100 years as opposed to 1648? And it worked. They never did it again. It was Yeah, it was yeah thank there God. Never, <laughs> yeah, nothing ever happened again. I, I do think that the, that the array of forces is such, especially given the crisis conditions, that... Uh, that some sort of transformation was going to occur on the ground and that at some point that transformation was going to be recognized diplomatically, which is really what Westphalia is. It's not the imposition of a system. It is the recognition of a transformation that had happened sort of underneath the feet of everybody without anyone really pushing for it or trying to make it happen in the first place. Related to this, and then we'll move on to the next hinge point, I'm curious what you guys think about the importance of intellectual innovations, that someone like Hugo Grotius, really the first modern theorist of international war, is writing in relation to the outbreak of the war. What role do you think intellectual transformations, which I mean, a ton of them happen during the 30 years war? I mean, you could point to even Grimmel's house and when we're talking about aesthetics as really the first picaresque novel, you know, the first zelig of history is during the 30 years war you get Grotius writing about international law do you guys think these sorts of intellectual currents are actually channeling the material forces in particular ways or do you think they're kind of epiphenomenal and reacting to as opposed to shaping events i do think that they begin as as a reaction to events and an attempt to i mean especially when you talk like a guy like Grotius, an attempt to justify a political formation that he is part of uh, and and that all the intellectual you know, energy flows from that uh, goal, uh, but you know once that happens, when, once that's out there, then it becomes the basis for future uh, people to respond to and, and to be shaped by. But I I do think that it is a result of the actions on the ground that like initially make these things uh, uh, spring up, and then. Only later do that you, can you point to those intellectual developments as things that can meaningfully influence uh, events. But they do at that point. Uh, and we'll talk about this in one of our appendix episodes, the kind of relationship between um, thinkers, advisors, you know, court advisors, and the patronage system that everything is being – or me- most you know, writing, most thinking of this is being done under the – auspices or the search for patronage usually from the ruling party whoever is in power at that moment so a lot it it is this relationship between all these people who you know have some kind of insight into what is happening in the moment and some and a lot of new ways of describing but also a lot written in the context of 
who who is in power is going to want to hear me saying these things. So it is an in, a combination of of insight and uh, f- flattery to what people want to hear. That that is you know being the a lot of the intellectual output uh, of this of this time. Would you agree, Matt? Oh yeah, definitely. Another thing I find so interesting about the Thirty Years of War is that when it pops up as an important metaphor for people like after it, and you know the the last Thirty Years War explosion was really during like the fifties and the sixties. That's when Grimmelshausen first gets translated into English, I believe, at least on a mass scale, and and it becomes this referential space for people who think they're living through uh, liminal moments. It'll be interesting, you know, in fifty years when people look back on this, they'll be like, why were they attracted to the Thirty Years War? and what was going on then i mean really the one that really clicked it into place was the for us more than anything i think was the the for me the the two elements of climate change which feel is something that you know is essential to this moment and is essential to our moment and then the the elements that we can talk of that are the a financial collapse that is going across europe in this moment and also the information revolution that is so much of a part of this that is you know, changing the way that you know, subjects relate to their uh, sovereign. And I, I, I can totally, you know, the the thing in the 40s and 50s that people were very interested in, you know, makes a lot of sense because of, you know, it was total wars. War. It was yeah. total uh, war. That's what okay. they, 30s war, first another, total war. Yeah, we just did another war that lasted 30 years, mostly across Central uh, Central Europe. I wonder what this reminds me of. And, you know, uh, th- so that makes total sense. But it is, it is you know, these resonant themes that we have talked about over and over on, you know, basically every time we talk about talk about this show that, you know, I think makes it fairly obvious why we would want to discuss it again uh, at this moment. Um, and are themes that would not be immediately obvious anytime before, say, you know, 20, 2008, let's say. It's really one of those foundational moments of modernity. So let's move on now to the second hinge point, which deals with the third of the three defenestrations of Prague. People are always getting thrown out of windows in Prague. In the so, fashion. In, in, <laughs> the, 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 what, there's, there's a description of, of it where someone says he, he was thrown out of the window in the local fashion. Like that <laughs> was understood to be just the thing that they did. We were reading that, something really from funny. a... Uh, a a generation, you know, again, something that will come up in an appendix. We were reading something from a generation before this about a uh, uh, basically a, a Catholic inquisitor of heresies being so annoyed by somebody that they were interviewing in Prague that they said, I wish I could have thrown him out of a window. So it's like in the back of everybody's mind in Prague at any time is there's always the window. <laughs> there's option. always a chance. There's, yes. Don't, <laughs> right? don't. My thing is like for life advice. Find someone who loves you as much as people in Prague love throwing people out of windows. <laughs> or and also, also don't stand by don't, a window in Prague. Yes, exactly. Don't don't find yourself between uh, someone you, you have beef with in a window in Prague. So what was the defenestration of Prague? And, and what happens if that window is boarded up or someone decides to close it that day and he just smashes into it as opposed to tumbling out yes. the, the castle wall, as it were? <laughs> Well, the, the defenestration was uh, the ritual window th- chuck of three representatives of uh, the emperor by the uh, the 
Protestant city fathers of of Prague who were in the process of overthrowing their king, who was also going to about to be made a Holy Roman Emperor, Ferdinand II. And the, this event is what uh, ensures that there's going to be a violent conflict between, at the very least, the Bohemians and the emperor, empire. Uh, I, I don't think it really matters so much whether uh, if there's a defenestration. Like there was going to be some sort of violent conflict at that point. The the electors of Bohemia had they they were motivated, they were organized, they had the capacity, they believed themselves to be capable of winning a conflict with the emperor. So they were going to make some sort of show of that, no matter what. Even if the, if the windows boarded up, they might have just stabbed him to death. Who knows? Even though that would have been very tacky and uncheck of them. Uh, I think the real question is if it really is the the decision of the Palatine Elector Frederick V to take the offered crown when they offer it to him that guarantees that the war is going to be what it is, and that is a similarly kind of fixed situation because uh, the entire court around Frederick had convinced themselves for a while that they were the force that was going to bring about the final confrontation with with Catholic heresy and had built what they thought was a stable and uh, meaningfully powerful political and economic and diplomatic alliance among different Protestant powers to bring that about. So then by that point, you're basically saying that some spark was going to be found regardless. Yeah. And we so, get, and what we get in history is the, the, the particular form of it, which is particular to those weirdos who love throwing people out of windows out of religious devotion, because the first defenestration helped spark the uh, Hussite war. So what could have changed by that moment, effectively? Because essentially, that, that second hinge point, the argument is that this thing is going to get pop off no matter what. So what what had happened to that point where you think some sort of conflict was inevitable? By 1617, let's say 1618, there's going to be a 30 years war. Is that what you're effectively saying? And if so, could you explain why? There's some sort of conflict with, at the very least, Bohemia, uh, because they were set on rejecting Ferdinand II as the king, and that was not something that the Habsburgs were going to be, allo- uh, going to be able to allow to happen. I guess the the question there is whether it becomes a empire wide conflagration. Yeah. yeah, as you said, like the real the real hinge is you know the court of Frederick V of the Pal- Palatinate, and if if that doesn't happen, do does any other force come to the aid of? Yeah, Europa what if he doesn't Union? take the crown? Does what do you think happens if he doesn't take, take the, the crown? Because they shop the crown around to a lot of people, and yeah, nobody like, else no, was psycho. You. Yes, Leave me that out of sounds this. like a bad idea. Yeah. You guys take care of it yourself. But I mean, uh, it had to. Ha- it, it, there was going to be conflict because that the Bohemian, the King of Bohemia, was the essentially tie-breaking vote uh, among the electors of the Holy Roman Emperor because there were three uh, secular Protestant electors at that point, and then the three Catholic Prince Bishops, and the seventh vote was was the Bohemian King. So the future of the M- the Imperial crown was really on in the balance there with who became King of Bohemia, uh, which is also an electoral title. So yeah, conflict is inevitable. If there's nobody to take the, th- the crown though, uh, then the Bohemians probably just get uh, rinsed pretty quickly. And uh, everyone's tries to 
just pretend it never happened, which I think is certainly what uh, John George uh, of Saxony, who is the chief Lutheran elector, would have preferred. So what happens then? No one takes the crown. They get rinsed. Is there not this conflagration? Or again, is it happening no matter what? Because this is really interesting from a Marxist perspective because it allows you to really identify what are the crucial factors. I, I, I think that a conflict is inevitable uh, just because everyone, every power within the continent is going to be forced by the same matrix of crises to try to aggrandize themselves. Uh, and it is that struggle that pulls up out of the earth all of these innovations against yeah uh, uh, that no one is planning, no one is seeking, but which are emergent and necessary to facilitate this conflict. I mean, other things to, to consider, like so, if the Bohemian Re- Revolt is just um, crushed pretty quickly. It's the you know the Winter Revolt or something. You know, in my, in my mind, what we return to then is the main conflict between Habsburgs and France. And then the other thing that that I think of is what happens with the Eighty Years' War with the Dutch if the full force of the Habsburg, you know, the two sides of the Habsburg Empire can really focus on that. Does the Dutch become the international cause of the protestant alliance and the 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 wedge against the habsburgs you know does france as it eventually does uh, does it intervene directly in the spanish netherlands to to support the dutch cause uh does do the dutch make a separate alliance with the protestant princes of the holy roman empire and does that become a a fulcrum of of conflict within uh the holy roman empire as you know, if the, if the Protestant princes are forming their own uh, international policy of aid against the Dutch, does it just shift to who is the wedge that all the anti-Habsburg international forces are are using to try to uh, subvert Habsburg power? And then, how does that affect Spanish colonialism? Do you get you know? Latin American revolutions 150 years before you do because Spain is now much more concentrating on what's happening in their northwestern frontier than they would be otherwise. I don't think that would necessarily have occurred just because the Spanish administration in the New World was uh, very much organized around uh, a facilitating the creation of a uh, in, basically independent new nobility in or in the Americas. Uh, because that was the easiest way to do it. That was it was the uh, the 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 way that required the least amount of uh, infrastructure to carry out. And as a result, over time, less and less of the of the silver of the New World made its way to Spain at all, because they were uh, the local uh, rulers were able to just keep as much really as they wanted. Uh, and if 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 if, if there's less um, over, even less oversight in the New World, I think that makes even less motivation uh, for the locals to resist. It's, it's really not until the, uh, the, the, the revolts in Latin America happen uh, are sparked by an attempt to uh, reorganize and rationalize uh, the colonial administration and to increase central authority and oversight. Uh, and as long as that wasn't happening, the, locals, the local elites in Latin America were happy to stay as part of the Spanish Empire. 
Right. It's that it's that shock at the imperial core with the the French invasion and and yeah. changing, you know, putting Joseph uh, on the throne and and changing the administration of the colonies that really sparks that. Yeah. What do you think of the uh, the the Dutch question then, Matt? I think that's where. I mean, yeah. If if it's inevitable as we're saying it is, then the question is where where will the spark be? And and uh, if there is a full scale attempt to retake the the Low Countries after the just twelve years truce ends, then there's every motivation for France and England, for that matter, to come around to the defense of the Dutch. Which means, yeah, the 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 conflict will will happen somewhere, and that's as good a possibility as anywhere. So, is that ultimately an argument about capitalism's inevitability? Um, and the reason that I ask that is, do you think that if it is inevitable, it could have taken a different form? I don't know. If, it's a question. Like capitalism becomes inevitable at a certain point. I don't think you can deny that. But it until that point, it isn't. You know, like because of of the shifting sands of time and history, and and the fact that the form of capitalism that we get is so specifically contextualized in England. You know, like mm-hmm. it is the in agricultural revolution in England that creates the the form of capitalism attached to a state structure to facilitate it. Uh, and when, when, and if it's that contingent geographically, it's hard to say that at any point it has to happen. But uh, at some point, nothing is going to impede it from developing as part of this conflict matrix with, with the states of Europe. Well, could you get a Catholic capitalism as opposed to a Protestant capitalism? I think that's what I'm trying to ask because that would have different features and a different tenor than the one that we – the sort of Calvinist-infused Anglo-American dominant capitalism. You could think of a, a Spanish Franco capitalism, which will still be capitalism but would have a different vibe. I don't think so because of, as I said, of the geographic fixedness of it, the, the places that capitalism – uh, the capitalist structures emerge uh, are north of a certain latitude, and 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 those places become hegemonically Protestant in in the 16th century. You know, I, I think one of the arguments that we all also try to make in in this series is that kind of the language, the the ideological structures that you know buttress and and. Um, Give give shape to what will become uh, English capitalism are developed in the Lowlands at this time in in Amsterdam among the very specific Calvinist nature of, of the of the the Dutch trade empire of this time and you know all of these these social structures that that give rise to it and give shape to to how a political structure can be uh, created you know, are forged in the this fight for Protestant independence at this time. You know, I, I think, again, like the specific shape of what we have has to come from the, the history that we know, and that's based around these, you know, ideological innovations of, of Protestantism and the Protestant re- Revolution. It really, it, it really depends because, you know, as we said in another uh, hinge point, you know, there is a version of history in which Henry VIII, instead of doing the... um English Reformation is is an, a a Catholic defender throughout his entire uh, reign, uh, and does that mean that that England never goes Protestant or it develops its own you know 
English Catholicism, like French Catholicism exists, right? Possibly, but because this is the, the Weberian thesis, yeah, right. Like the the Weberian thesis is that the Calvinism and the Protestantism, uh, sorry, the Calvinism and the capitalism kind of go together. But it's an interesting mind and, experiment. Like it's 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 not just like a, because of idealism. Like in the case of England, it is the material reality of the expropriation of church lands in England that becomes mm-hmm. a a material force this this new land that is is put onto the market uh and and essentially a agreement where the landed class give over the political power that came with their access to those church lands through its offices to uh the crown in exchange for the economic power of having direct access to this land and it's those lands that become the places where capitalist forms of social production really start taking off. Uh, so you have a religious innovation that leads to a material transition that then uh, becomes an engine for fundamental social shifts. So this is a question that emerges from angles before we get to the final hinge point. Do you think there was a moment during the 30 years where you guys are way more familiar with it than I am, where you could have had a type of Bauern Krieg or a peasant's war where the quote unquote masses try to seize control from this thing that's being directed from top down? Or is that not really possible? Because I believe from what I recall, there's some writing in angles that he's like, that that could have happened in a way where you could, even before capitalism is like fully developed, you could have in theory had a more controlled version of it if there was some sort of resistance from the the ground up or in your reading have you found that that really just wasn't possible for various reasons well there were tons of peasant revolts specifically uh, during the early stages of the war uh there were peasant revolts in austria uh in moravia slesia uh there were spontaneous uh eruptions of peasant resistance to the conflict on religious grounds generally, uh, but they were universally defeated in particular just because the war was throwing up these massive mercenary armies that had the capacity to run down a rebellion wherever it erupted. And the peasants had no more capacity to organize independently than they had 100 years ago during the peasant wars of the, 1620, uh, the 1620s because they, the peasantry are, are the last to encounter these transformative social structures so they're the least capable of using them to their advantage uh, in the case of conflict but there certainly is a ferment uh, and a hostility and a resistance among the peasant class that goes throughout the entire war but is mostly after those initial rebellions are put down takes the, the form of bandit resistance to the military authorities wherever they emerge and uh the ambush and massacre of soldiers wherever they can be uh, safely engaged with. But yeah, the, the organizing capacity uh, to multiply the forces of the peasants just wasn't there. I mean, to that, I, I would add and maybe ask like the access to the information infrastructure, I think would be a, a big part of that because, you know, we, we talk a lot about the organizational capacity that is offered by this new print culture around, 
which is largely centered in urban areas and appeals to and is uh, shaped by, you know, the urban population. You know, in my mind, from what I, I have read, the fact that any kind of peasant resistance could not be shaped by both access to the organization of, of distributing information through a print culture and, and even consuming it through, you know, the edu- educational attainment, although that is growing rapidly at this time, would be one of the one of the limiting factors of, of putting together a, a coherent, organized, focused peasant resistance. Speaking of mercenaries, let's get to our final hinge point, and that relates to Gustavus Adolphus not dying in 1632. So what would you say we need to know about Gustavus Adolphus? He's more than just the name of a college that Steve Zahn went to in Minnesota. And why is he important? And what does his death shape? And what happens if he doesn't die? He's probably one of the most important figures in European history that not that many people know about. So, so maybe just say, who is this guy and why is he important? Gustavus Adolphus is, is uh, the figure who is able to uh, take his position as king of Sweden, which is a remote Baltic composite monarchy, Sweden and, and Finland and, and parts of um, uh, the mainland Baltic across the ocean, uh, with a claim to the throne of Poland that he pursues vigorously, but a very sparsely populated country uh, at, at sort of the edge of Europe. But because of its compact social structure, uh, very small and weak nobility, uh, is able to command a very precocious state structure. Uh, Sweden, unlike any of the other major powers who fight in the Thirty Years' War, is able to depend for their manpower on military conscription of their own population. They don't have to rely on mercenary captains who are basically using credit cards to uh, get a bunch of guys together to go on campaign and then can't really pay them at that point. They're able to get get a mechanism for bringing a percentage of their population into military service. Uh, and then once in that service, he utilizes a lot of the advances in military uh, science, uh, both technological and tactical, that had been developed by the fighting specifically the Dutch had been doing during their War of Independence until that point. And the presence of this new, uh, more dynamic military force uh, immediately changes the entire course of the war. Until the arrival of the Swedes, the Protestant forces had been getting their asses kicked basically nonstop uh, for a decade. But Gustavus shows up and has a few crushing victories and immediately starts rolling across Germany in this swath from the northeast to the southwest and becomes, while doing so, the face of the Protestant cause, the lion of the north, and the guy who a lot of people who had been prophesizing about a Protestant prince to come and redeem the continent, maybe they thought it was Frederick V, they realized, actually, never mind, it's Gustavus Adolphus. (laughs) And at sort of the apogee of his power, uh, he is killed at the Battle of Lutzen, because unlike many sovereigns at the time, he insisted on leading from the front uh, and also then proved why you don't do that. It's a bad idea, because once he died, the momentum of the of the uh, Swedish cause is blunted, and shortly after, the, the French are forced to come in formally and declare war on, on Spain uh, and invade Germany. Uh, so yeah, he's, 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 he's incredibly important because he's this figure who holds within his, his person all of these 
dramatic changes that are happening everywhere, but are only able to be concentrated at certain points. And he is one of those concentrated points. Yeah, a non-replacement uh, really figure, does. kind of, yeah. Yeah. But I don't honestly know how much things would be different if he hadn't died, because in the process of accumulating all this power and influence to himself through his military victories, he was, of course, alienating uh, uh, his allies because they had started the war to try to reduce the Habsburg authority. They did not want to replace that with the overweening power of uh, of the King of Sweden, even if he was a co-religionist in the case of the German princes. But uh, And France specifically was getting very uh, – Richelieu in France was getting very anxious about Gustavus because him becoming the all-powerful uh, force in Central Europe didn't really help them either. And towards the end of his life, you know, again, after one year of campaign in, in uh, Germany, uh, Gustavus was musing aloud to people around him. Perhaps there could be a Swedish Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, you know, so th- it was a live question of whether or not that he would be swapped in as the new dominating force in the empire. And then to that, you would add the addition of this rich Baltic trading empire that he was in the process of building north, which would be another economic engine that the, the eastern Habsburgs, you know, did, had not previously had access to. So it was a uh, imagination of a, a reorientation of the power structure of the Holy Roman Empire in a way that could be perhaps even more dominant than the uh, the Habsburgs one. So, so again, the, the well, power it, it creates a new forward. pole in northeastern yes, Europe, exactly. a pole that never really existed, where you get a Sweden-inflected Holy Roman Empire. And the question then becomes, was Gustavus Adolphus uh, talented enough, like a Charles Martel, to basically just take over a bunch of warring princes and, and uh, uh, affirm his authority? And, and some, it, to me, I, again, not an expert, it suggests that, that that was a real live possibility. Even if people would have been able to, to rally against him, that he was such a singular, singular individual and such a talented individual, both militarily and in terms of charisma, that he might have been able to, to relocate European power, again, northeast, which kind of returns to one of my initial questions about Western versus Eastern Europe. If you have a Gustavus Adolphus who basically pulls Europe further east, particularly northeast in the Baltics, is he someone who then, you know, invades the Muscovite kingdom or, or, or what would the, then become Russia and kind of reorients all of world history to that land-based Eastern European empire that later people from Napoleon to Hitler were always trying to build to basically um, deal with, you know, the the Western powers' access to the new world. I think even if he lives, uh, the, the the Swedes, I just don't think, have the uh, material base to, to sustain that kind of power. Uh, the, like they, as I said, they're able to create this amazing military machine, but at the cost of, of depopulating an already thinly populated country. Like some parts of Sweden see their male populations drop by 40% as a result of military mobilization. Uh, and this is not a place that really has that uh, much, uh, you know, to, to spare. And as I was saying, you know, the more that Gustavus is aggrandized, the more every other uh, power in Europe starts to see an interest in mobilizing and organizing against him. And so I think that some sort of uh, – there was going to be some sort of a hard limit to how far the Swedes were going to be able to assert themselves before they provoked enough of a response that we could coordinate to neutralize them. 
And then they didn't have the, the, the material base to make up for that. It is funny to imagine the possibility of Gustavus doing the Napoleon Hitler fail run in the exact same way. That's what uh, I always think cent- about with three him. centuries earlier. Like if he <laughs> survives it in 1632, takes Vienna in 1633, f- mobilizes the full force of the empire and is like, okay, now I'm going to press on and, uh, you know, uh, exert my claims to Poland, which he, he had and was inter- interested in and basically try to do the, uh, the invasion of Russia and then just get totally bogged down there and collapse. Yeah, what and everything could go wrong? Yeah, exactly. Russia. Absolutely. Maybe I mean, that get, is how the, yeah. that's how the Swedish uh, Empire eventually is annihilated. It basically bashes yeah. itself into exactly. pieces, fighting Poland and Russia. Yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, I say not to uh, you know further extol Gustavus, but uh, people who are interested in like military history, when you hear uh, people today talk about combined arms, uh, yes. maneuvers, this is that's him. I mean, Napoleon learned from him, and yes. it's all been you know, kind of a straight line. From there, uh, incredibly influential from that perspective. He took the cannons and he put them in there with the with, with the with the infantry, <laughs> with the guys. No, the funny thing, with the guys. Yes, uh, and we'll, we will talk about this at length in the show. But and, and then it is also funny that his army becomes a breeding ground for the most successful commanders uh, that have wild influence in in later parts of the story. Like every. Basically, every Scottish captain in the English Civil War who formed these, you know, outsizedly powerful forces uh, in in Scotland are veterans of Gustavus Adolphus's army. He's an Alexander-like figure in that regard, where he sort of succeeds these novel military techniques and technologies all over Europe and and really changing the course. That's why I think that there's a world where he actually does pull a Charles Martel and he is talented and charismatic enough to take over the Holy Roman Empire. Um, but that's that, that's just my crazy belief. Well, all right, we gotta we gotta get a time machine and tell him don't go to Lutzen. Just, yes. just yeah. chill. Yeah, what are you doing, man? Or you don't don't have to do, this. do do the leading your do the brave leading your army in prayer in front of the at the front lines while uh, the bullets are already whizzing, and then maybe you know send in Benair to to lead from the front. You can you can sit this one from the back. So you got to look at some maps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, guys, on that note, as we as we wrap up here, what do you want listeners to take away from from this project or from the Thirty Years' War? What what should they know? Obviously, everyone check out Hell on Earth, of course, but in, in a little soundbite, what's your final thoughts? New rules. <laughs> well, one thing I, I that I got from making the show as somebody who is captured by the same sort of pall that we're all under as overly informed people at a time of crisis that doesn't seem to be resolvable, uh, is that that the condition that feels terminal to us is, in fact, the chronic condition of humankind throughout history. Uh, yes. And per- perhaps this isn't the best thing that you want to – or the, the best thing that you want to take away from studying history. I guess the fantasy of, of studying history is that you're going to ha- give yourself some kind of knowledge of the future. Uh, but I guess one of my takeaways is, is that all these people thought things were one way and really it was another. And, and you know – and, and and not in the way that they they would expect, you know, not just like oh, it's going to go the opposite of, of something. It's like the the thing that was being built during this process is something that no one could have possibly imagined uh, at the time, and uh, we're most likely in the same way now. So uh, if 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 you 
we're we're setting up something that we will not be able to picture in the future. Absolutely. Well, on that, that actual, sounds exciting. That's, yeah, it's a note cool. of hope. Yeah. Looking it's good. To it. It's a, that's a good way to end. Usually, we end on something super fucking depressing. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, check out Hell on Earth. You all already listened to Chapo, and we'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.